Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Well, good morning, church. Uh, We're glad you're with us today. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Hanford. Uh, and we are continuing to, uh, to trek along in our journey through the book of Galatians. And before we dive in today, uh, I need to have just a, a little disclaimer is that Paul in these verses that we're going to be covering in chapter 3 gets incredibly uh, dense and incredibly heady. And so uh, we're going to be in the classroom uh, for a lot of the time today before we... Uh, really go to church, as it were. Uh, But before we get there, uh, I want to share a quick story with you. Uh, When I was younger, uh, me and my friends, we would build forts outside. We would build slip and slides. We would have tents and do campouts. I mean, we do all sorts of things out uh, outside using our imagination, all of that stuff. Um, but one of the things that we always seemed to be in need of were stakes to put things into the ground, whether it was for our fort or a slip and slide or whatever. Uh, I remember one time in particular, actually, we were playing um, uh, baseball in my friend's backyard, and we decided that we needed to have a slip and slide uh, from second base to third base. And so as you ran, you had to go on the slip and slide and the people obviously were trying to tag you out there at the end. Uh, but that being said, tent st- we never had tent stakes. We never had them readily available to us or anything like that, which is probably good that a bunch of 9 and 10-year-old boys didn't have a sharp metal object at their regular disposal. So what we would do instead was we would raid our dad's toolboxes and get, uh, all, get whatever tools that we could find that were going to be able to hold these things in place. Obviously, screwdrivers are the best fit. And so what we would do regularly was go, we'd get the screwdrivers, we'd pound them into the ground. And then when we were done, being nine and 10 year old boys, would we clean it up? I mean, yeah, to the level that we thought was clean, which usually entailed just ripping up a tarp or, uh, you know, kicking some dirt over the top of the screwdriver or whatever it may be, um, and losing those screwdrivers most oftentimes. Uh, A lot of times the screwdrivers really wouldn't even work because we'd pound them in and obviously they're not meant to be used as stakes and so they would come out, we have to push them back in, have to come out, we have to push them back in. They didn't do the job that really we had hoped they were going to do. I was foolish. We were foolish to expect that a tool that wasn't uh, supposed to be used for the job that it was being used for was going to work as well. And just as I was foolish in that way to believe that, uh, the, the Galatian church was foolish really to expect the law to achieve what it was never intended to do. And this is the crux of this entire book of the Bible is that the Judaizers, there's a group of people who, who came and taught this church that Paul had set up that you have to believe in Jesus and obey the law in order to gain salvation. That's a foolish way to think about it. And so Paul does his best through this entire book to refute that claim. But the Galatian church had fallen for the false teaching of those Judaizers. They, the, these people promised to produce God's blessing if they would submit to circumcision and the keeping of the Mosaic law. That's what these Judaizers were teaching. So believe in God and do something else. Like we've said numerous times, if you hear a gospel that says, believe in Jesus and do something else to gain salvation, it's a false gospel. It's not the true 
gospel. And the Galatians were willing to set aside, really, what was, what was proven for something that, that was promoted as better. That's what the Judaizers were saying, that this is going to be better. They had been saved. The Galatians had been saved. They had received the Holy Spirit uh, on the basis of faith alone, apart from law-keeping, completely and totally. They were saved, but now they were willing to adopt law-keeping as the operating principle of their spiritual lives. And that, that really is where the crux of this whole book comes in. So before uh, we get too, too down on the Galatian church, though, and think to yourselves, man, how would you be dumb enough to think something like that? Why would you ever think something like that? I think the reality is, is actually that all of us do this. I think it's important for us to remember that every single one of us at some point or another seeks out the affirmation of others based on our accomplishments. At some point in our life, all of us do this. I think it's human nature for us to want people to tell us that we're doing a good job, that we have done and accomplished something Good. We all like being encouraged. And some people will even go out of their way in order to do something that is going to get people to notice them. So those people will simply say, hey, good job. There are people who are driven by this. You know, think about when you were on a baseball team uh, or a soccer team or, or a team, whatever, band, uh, when, you were a, when you were a little kid. And uh, in my instance, baseball the coach would say, hey, uh, okay, everybody, you're done with your stretches now. I need you guys to run out to, uh, to the foul pole, touch the foul pole, turn around and come back. And, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, however old I was, man, I want to do my best. I want to be the, 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 the person who gets back first for two reasons. One, I wanted everybody else in the team to know that I was faster than them, which, side note, I wasn't. Uh, but two, I wanted my coach to recognize how good of a job that I did. I wanted that affirmation from him. I wanted my coach to say, wow, great job. You did a good job. And I do think that this is the driving force behind humans and the Galatian church consistently messing up the very simple idea of the gospel. That, that an act of faith in Christ is all that is required to get you to heaven. You know, we always try to mess the whole thing up by saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but look what else that I have done. We always try to do that, and really, that is what the Galatian church is trying to do as well. So like last week, like I said, we're going to get a little bit heavy, heady here. It's going to get a little bit dense, but I need you to lean in for a few minutes so I can give you some context regarding what Paul really is going to dive into. I know you can do it. You may get confused from time to time, but bear with me. The first nine verses of this chapter we've covered over the course of the last two weeks. We need to remember that Paul has tried to correct the Galatian church's erroneous thinking. We have, Paul has tried to say, he told them, hey, to remember back to when they were saved, he told them uh, that Abraham was saved because of his faith, not because of his works, that Abraham was the father of faith, that, that really all people on earth would have been blessed by Abraham's bloodline, or not by his bloodline, but by his faith line. Rather, that's what Paul took the first nine verses of chapter three to talk about. So Paul landed pretty hard on saying, hey, look at our guy Abraham. Look at our guy, the spiritual father, saved by faith. But the Judaizers, right, these are the teachers who came in, the Judaizers wouldn't have been caught off guard by the mention of this. They would have known that, that uh, the Bible says that, that Abraham was credited, like his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So his faith got him to heaven. The Judaizers would have known that. And so they would have quickly responded, yes, Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of his, uh, basis of his faith, 
But Abraham was also circumcised. Abraham also followed the law. Abraham also did the things that he was supposed to do. So since circumcision was a sign of someone's acceptance of the Mosaic covenant, we're going to get there, hold on, Abraham's faith led to circumcision, and in time also led to law-keeping. So because of this, Paul found it necessary to address the matter of the law of Moses in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, just dropped a whole lot of words on you, just dropped a whole lot of things that you may not necessarily have context for. So let's get into it. Okay, so like I said last week, God established covenants throughout the Bible. Two of the most famous covenants are the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, it's the one that I read last week. God essentially said, I'm going to bless everyone on earth through you, Abraham. That's what the Abrahamic covenant says. And his faith was credited to him as righteousness, not because of what he did, right, but because of what he believed. His faith that he had in God was credited to him as righteousness. All of this is great and wonderful regarding the Abrahamic covenant. But there's a covenant God makes with a guy by the name of Moses. This covenant is called the Mosaic Covenant, and to understand it, we would need to go to both Exodus as well as Deuteronomy. But for understanding today's passage, this is essentially what you need to know. The Mosaic Covenant was way different than the Abrahamic Covenant, completely and totally different. The Mosaic Covenant is actually one that relied on the nation of Israel's faithfulness to God, uh, to God's law rather, not just to God, but to God's law to not be cursed. Let me say that again, okay? The Mosaic Covenant, first of all, way different than the Abrahamic Covenant, okay? But on top of that, the Mosaic Covenant is actually a covenant that relied on the nation of Israel's faithfulness to God's law to not be cursed. So essentially, do these things and you will receive favor from me. You will not receive cursing from me. That's the extent of the covenant, right? The covenant really does, it talks through, it gives all of these different laws over and over and over again of things that the nation of Israel has to do in order to stay faithful to God. So Paul knew at the time of this writing, so back to Paul writing in Galatians, right? So Paul knew the Judaizers were going to lean into the Mosaic covenant, the idea that you have to do all of these things or else you're going to be cursed. Paul knew that. He knew that they were going to point out Deuteronomy 26, 27, 28. And so because of that, right after Paul is done writing about Abraham being justified through faith alone, he, he-, he heads off their argument about Abraham being circumcised with the following. Okay, I just gave you guys a whole bunch of context for verses 10 through 12 in chapter 3 of Galatians. Here we go. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one relies on the law, or no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. Verse 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Okay. So Paul is essentially arguing here that the law cannot compel people to righteousness. It can only condemn them. That's what he's saying here. The, The law cannot compel people to glory, cannot compel people to being righteous, cannot compel people to salvation. The only thing the law is good for is for condemning people. That's what he says here. Okay. Paul's quoting here actually from Deuteronomy chapter 27 
where it says, just as what he wrote, that if you don't do everything written in the law, you'll be cursed. So he's continuing to say then that the law doesn't compel you to goodness, it only condemns you to badness, right? Think about even, even the law of our land. Think about speed limits, right? And as you think about speed limits, you, you only get pulled over for breaking the law in the, po- in, in the area where the speed limit has, has been posted, right? And so you get pulled over and say you're supposed to be going 55, you're going 85 for whatever reason. It's a back road. You're doing what you want to do. And you get pulled over because of the fact that you broke the law. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but never once have I been pulled over by a police officer or CHP or whatever it may be. I've never once been pulled over by one of those people just to be told how good of a job I am doing at driving, right? The law is in place to make sure that we don't break it, but that doesn't credit me as righteous for following it. It only condemns me when I do something bad. I would love one time to get pulled over and be scared and freaking out. And really the, the cop comes over and just pulls out a lollipop and says, hey, you're doing a great job driving. Keep it up, bud, and send me on my way. But the reality is that doesn't happen. That isn't the case. Because why? Because the fact the law cannot compel people to righteousness, it can only condemn them. It's the same thing with the Mosaic law that Paul is talking about here. It's what Paul is reminding him of, that you don't get good credits for simply doing what you're supposed to do. That's not how it works. You only get deducted points when you do something bad. This is why the temptation to follow the law was such a big issue. Because because of the fact the law is a curse to anyone who doesn't follow it. Then it would be a massive issue to not follow the law. It would be a massive issue. It wouldn't have mattered how great God's promises were. It wouldn't have mattered how incredible it was that Abraham got into heaven because of his faith, right? If Abraham didn't follow the law, though, according to the Mosaic Covenant, he still would have been cursed. That's what Paul is saying here. And now 13 is hopefully going to clarify it a little bit further uh, for us. And this is why Paul is so incredible in this defense of the gospel. Paul uses the very words the Judaizers were preaching and interprets them correctly and then points everybody straight to Jesus. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. And again, this is super heady, and I'm probably geeking out more about it than, than any of you are, but, but it's fascinating. Starting in verse 13, it says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Think about how Jesus died. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So, verse 13, like I said, he says, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. That's a quote from Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy, part of the Mosaic Law specifically. He says, look, Jesus actually broke the Mosaic Law that you're holding to. He became a curse for us, which was the burden of the law, So we didn't have to, and not only redeem the Jews who are no longer subject to the Mosaic law, but to the Gentiles as well. And then goes on to say that Jesus redeemed us, so the same blessing that was given to Abraham can now be given to us, right? What was this blessing that was given to Abraham? Jesus plus nothing. So in other words, there was no reason for the Galatians to be under the the law. All it accomplished was them being cursed because they couldn't uphold the entirety of the law. 
So let's look at Jesus instead who took that burden for us. Okay, we, we need to keep moving, okay? We, and I know I just left a lot of you probably confused, and I know it's probably rough, but just know that Paul is going on an epic defense of the gospel right now. He is the Atticus Finch of gospel defense right now. That's Atticus Finch, not Abercrombie and Fitch. Millennials, read a book. Okay, so the next session, section gets a little bit heady too, which, shocker, Galatians 3, 15 to 18, it says this. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Let's keep going. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, okay, so the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law, was introduced 430 years later, 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant. So the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So he's saying, hey, look, there was a law established after the covenant. Just because it was established later doesn't mean it took the place of the covenant. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Jesus plus nothing. There's a lot here. Okay, but in terms of what we need to know about this, Paul is saying that both covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, are important. But just because the Mosaic covenant came later doesn't mean that it replaced the Abrahamic covenant. And it definitely doesn't mean that it's better. Anyone who has purchased a dryer in the last five years that knows that a newer dryer doesn't mean it is a better dryer. It's the same thing with these covenants, right? Same with the covenants. Paul says that the Abrahamic covenant, because of the fact that it came first, is what, it ne is what needs to take precedent here. Whew! What is the Abrahamic covenant? Jesus plus nothing. Okay? All you need is faith to be considered righteous and faith in Jesus specifically, which leads us to the real question in this entire thing, okay? And we're going to land this plane with what does any of this have to do with you? But Paul asked the most pertinent question that, that he could have asked at this point as he's talking to the Galatians. He says this, why then was the law given at all. If the whole thing is blown up, if nothing matters, if the law didn't ever matter, if the law couldn't, couldn't credit us as righteous, if the law couldn't get us into heaven, what was the point of you giving Moses the law in the first place? What was the point? Here's the point. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. In other words, the law was added so people knew how to live a moral life that honored God until Jesus got there. That's why everything Paul has been arguing in the first three chapters come to a head right here in verse 19. When he says, why was the law given then? If it was Jesus plus nothing, what is the point of the law? It was added because people are sinful and people do whatever they want. That's why it was added, because we, we live in a broken world, because sin entered into the world, and it, it, I mean, it was, our world is completely and totally broken because of the fact that we are sinful 
people. So it was added because of the fact that people are sinful, they do whatever they want. So until it was time for Jesus to, to come, until it was time for, time for Jesus to come for the first time, let's put some rules, let's put some regulations in place to make sure everyone doesn't get too rowdy. That's essentially what the purpose of the law was, which is obviously that's a pretty good thing because even with the law in place, people still messed up all the time. Don't, don't believe me. Read the book of Judges. Like the Israelite nation still messed up all the time. Look at the life of David. These are people who lived according to the Mosaic law. And they still messed up all the time. Could you imagine what it would look like if that Mosaic law never existed? If the Ten Commandments never existed? If the entire book of Leviticus never existed? Okay? The Israelite nation would have been in complete and total shambles worse than they already were. I mean, think about, think about it this way. Okay? When you, when I uh, ever leave, leave like our kids at home by themselves, um, you know, we do this very rarely. And if we do, Sarah and I are going around the block once or twice or whatever. Right? The, the, we put more strict rules in place for when we are gone rather than when we are there. Why? Because we don't trust our kids to follow the rules to the T when we're, when we're gone. So we put even, even greater rules in place. Because we don't say, hey, you know what? We, we completely and totally trust you. We'll give you grace upon grace upon grace. And because of that, like, we're just going to go and we're not going to worry about any more rules. That's not what we do. We leave, we say, hey, you need to make sure this, 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 and this. Make sure the door is locked. Make sure that if anybody comes to the door um, and you don't know who they are, you, you, you don't answer the door, you don't open the door for any reason, right? You're like, well, you put all of these different rules in place. It's the same thing that happened. When Jesus wasn't manifest on earth, before Jesus came and fulfilled the law, before he did all of these things, a greater law was put into place to make sure that people lived morally. Not so people would be saved. That's the difference that we have here. The problem for us comes in, though, when we begin to get legalistic about the law. When we begin to attribute our accomplishments, our ability to do good things as us achieving some level of superiority in our faith. That somehow if we serve more, or we share the gospel more, or we visit more shut-ins, or we do the things that other Christians expect us to do, that we have become next-level Christians. We've somehow leveled up in our faith. That our tiny accomplishments somehow mean something to our infinite God. When we become legalistic and rely on our own accomplishments, we need to understand that those things are rooted in unbelief. They're not rooted in a greater faith. They're actually rooted in a lesser faith. When we believe that the things that we do actually get us closer to him. This is why legalism is so lethal. At its very core, legalism is based upon a distrust of God's promises. They are exchanged for confidence in our own performance. If we seek to gain God's favor by our works, we place ourselves under the law. And not just part of the law, all of the law. Then we find ourselves under the curse of the law, as Paul talks about, as is talked about in the Mosaic Law. The cure for the curse of the law is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the cure. Accepted and believed in by faith alone. That's it. 
in all of life, there are really only two choices, and we need to choose where we're going to land. We need to choose if it's going to be God's promises or our performance. That's where we have to choose. This is a decision initially that's made pertaining to our salvation. Right, the end of every service, we pray the ABCs, anybody new to faith, we, man, we would love to in, help you enter into the kingdom of God here by, by committing your life to Christ, right, right, like that, like initially, we make this decision when it comes to our initial salvation. And so if you are a Christian, somebody who is a follower of Christ, then you will have already made this decision that you said, I'm choosing God's promises, But this isn't just a decision that needs to be made regarding our salvation. This is also a decision that needs to be made regarding our sanctification, our ability to become holy, or our ability to become more holy, rather. We have to constantly choose whether we are going to abide by God's promises or our performance. Which one is it going to be? We have to do nothing to gain salvation apart from belief in Christ. And the minute we think to ourselves, we have to do something more, we have to get our life together, or, or, or we won't be saved, or I need to go into full-time missions, I need to read my entire Bible every single day, or I am worthless. The minute we think those things, we start doing, uh, we start doing those things, we have allowed legalism, and we have allowed the law to take hold of us, and it's rooted in unbelief. That's where the desire to do things, when it's Jesus plus something, it's rooted in unbelief because we no longer are simply clinging to God's promise that says, hey, believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. We are forsaking that promise at this point and saying, hey, hey, look what I did. Look what I can do. I did it. Are you impressed by me, God? And the answer is no, because we don't have to do nothing, we don't have to do anything to gain God's favor. We have to do nothing to gain God's favor, except believe in our heart and confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's all we have to do. The minute you think you have to do anything more than commit to Christ, you're no longer believing in God's promises. So church, what does this look like? I I really do think that there is a sense, and it's proved, proven every time I have to do a funeral where people don't know if they're a believer, they're a non-believer, whatever it is, and I ask about the person, they always say, oh, well, he was a really good person. There is a sense that if we are good, that we have somehow earned God's favor. Church, I think our responsibility in all of this is doing everything in our power to dispel the belief that in order to go to heaven, you have to be a good person. That's not how you get to heaven. That's not how any of us are saved, is by being a good person. Because the idea of good people is a myth in the first place. I talked about how we're sinful people. That condition is true of everybody. It looks like, it, this looks like talking with people in your relational world and reminding those people that, hey, hey, your life, just like their life, is one that is wrought with sin. One that every single day we mess up, that we sin in some way every single day. But it's getting better because of the fact that I have a perfect Savior who's already dealt with it. And I'm doing my best to become more holy. And I'm following him because of the fact that I'm choosing to believe in God's promises and not my own performance. That Jesus took care of it 
already. It's a reminder that it doesn't matter if you're a pastor, it doesn't matter if you're a missionary, an usher, or someone who has never said yes to Jesus in the first place, that Jesus requires a simple belief and commitment to him, period. That's it. That's our job as the church, to proclaim his name to, 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 to our own relational world with nothing but love and compassion. Where we get to say, as we have said, week in and week out for the last month and a half, in order to come to a saving faith, you have to believe Jesus plus nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, man, that... <laughs> Galatians is incredible. Paul is incredible, God. Thank you for, for sending someone like him to be able to proclaim your promises. And even in an incredibly dense and heady piece of scripture where we need to have context in the Old Testament with the Abrahamic law and the Mosaic law and the, or the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law, all those different things. God, the bottom line of all of this is a pure defense of your gospel. That is Jesus plus nothing that we don't have to be better in order to come to a saving faith in you. We simply have to say yes to you. That as we say yes to you and we choose your promises, that we do indeed become more holy. We indeed become more sanctified as we continue to say yes to your promises. So God, I pray right now that we would just, all of us as as a church would say yes to your promises. And for those people who are, who are listening in who and maybe they've never said yes to your promises before and they, they have thought to themselves over and over and over again, no, if I, can, I need to clean up my life first. I need to stop doing this first. I need to, I need to just be better first before I come to, come to Jesus. And to the, that we would recognize that's not what your gospel says. That's not what the Bible says. You say, hey, it's Jesus plus nothing. And so if that's you today, I would just pray along with me as we go through the ABCs that we say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I know my life is in shambles. I know that, that, that I sin every single day. And I recognize, Father, that you see sin as sin. It doesn't matter how bad it is, how egregious it is to you. It's, it's, it's just separation from us. And so, God, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, but I also believe that you sent your Son to die on a cross for me, pointing to the Abrahamic covenant, saying, hey, it's, it's, it's Jesus plus nothing. There is, there is faith. All that is required is faith in the fact that you sent your Son to die on a cross for us, that he conquered death, that he has lifted us out of that curse. And because of that, we get the opportunity to choose to follow you every single day. And God, I do pray that, that we would choose your promises every single day, not our own accomplishments, not the things that we can do. And that we as a church would consistently fight the idea that we have to do something more to come to salvation with you. We don't. We love you. In your son's name we pray, amen.